0: The following sermon was recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org. Chapter 19, uh, starting at verse 9, and then verses 18-21 20, in chapter 20. And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am coming to you in a thick cloud, that the people may hear when I speak with you, and may also believe you forever. When Moses told the words of the people to the Lord, the Lord said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow, and let them wash their garments and be ready for the third day. For on the third day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. And they washed their garments and he said to the people, be ready for the third day. Do not go near a woman. On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. And the Lord said to Moses, Go down and warn the people lest they break through to the Lord to look, and many of them perish. Also let the priests who come near to the Lord consecrate themselves, lest the Lord break out against them. And Moses said to the Lord, The people cannot come up to Mount Sinai, for you yourself warned us, saying, Set limits around the mountain and consecrate it. And the Lord said to him, Go down and come up, bringing Aaron with you. But do not let the priests and the people break through to come up to the Lord, lest he break out against them. So Moses went down to the people and told them. And then God uh, speaks the Ten Commandments in, verse, in chapter 20 and then in verse 18. It says, Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled and they stood far off and said to Moses, Uh, just to give a little background here, uh, we, we looked last week at um, kind of the culmination of the first 18 chapters of Exodus. Uh, the, God sets the people free and he brings them through the wilderness to Mount Sinai. And it becomes clear that this has really been the goal and destination all along. Uh, that God uh, didn't just save them from something, but that he's saving them to something. And specifically, he's calling them and inviting them to a relationship with himself. And we looked... Uh, last week at that invitation. God invites them into covenant relationship with himself. Uh, And that has clearly been his purpose all along. Uh, But God doesn't force them into it, right? He he lovingly invites them into this very special relationship where they will be God's chosen people uh, and he will have a very special and unique relationship with them, different than all the nations of the world. But through which God seeks to bless the nations of the world through Israel. Um, so uh, so that's kind of the backdrop to this. And in, in, in the second part of chapter 19, God says, the people say, yes, we want that kind of relationship. We, we willingly want to enter into this covenant. And God says, great. Uh, in that case, we need to have a face-to-face meeting. And so God describes to Moses that to, to repair the people to bring them to the mountain, and and the people are going to meet God face-to-face. Much like uh, Moses met uh, met God at the burning bush, the people are now going to meet God at the burning mountain. Okay, so we've upped the game a bit here, right? This is a spectacular event. And it's important, to, and I, and I have oftentimes misunderstood this. It's a little confusing when you read through it. With Moses going up and down the mountain, poor guy needs to put in an escalator, right? Because he's up and down. Um, you know, where exactly Moses is when God speaks the Ten Commandments to him? Well, if you, if you pay attention to the details, Moses is at the bottom with the people, and God speaks the Ten Commandments in the hearing of all the people. And he speaks to Moses, but he speaks to it. All Israel hears as God roars out, the Ten Commandments. Um, so, so this is kind of a, a, an impressive scene, and as you look at this this picture, and uh, we'll see in a moment, um, you know, pictures of a mountain on fire, and and it's 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 intimidating, and this is the the scene. Is this mountain is on fire, and God comes down, and there's fire, there's lightning, and um, it's it's a little ironic actually that God's inviting them into this relationship, but then He presents such a holy terror of his, of his presence, but the people are terrified, right? And they, they fall back in fear. They pull away and in the end they, they beg Moses, please don't let God even talk to us, right? Much less see him because it's just too much, right? And uh, it's, it's, um, uh, there's the part of this is a little humorous, right? God's calling him to this close, personal, intimate relationship and he terrifies them. Um, I feel like for the most part, I have a pretty good relationship with really small children and babies. And I I love children and babies and normally I don't terrify them. However, uh, my experience in Thailand is that oftentimes you go into a rural village where they've never seen a lot of six foot two uh, big white guys with gray beards, you know. Um, It's terrifying. And you try to approach the little kids and you put on your best smile and your gentlest voice and they still run screaming in terror. Uh, I've had that effect on small children, sadly. Um, well, that's kind of the effect here. And it's like, God, if you're trying to make a good first impression, th- this may not be the thing you're going for, right? They're, they're terrified of you. Well, clearly God knew what he was doing, and he, he could have appeared, because this is not God. God is not fire, and he is not smoke. He, he picked uh, natural phenomena to communicate something about himself. Right. He could have come in many different ways. Uh, in the New Testament, the Holy Spirit descends on Jesus in a dove. Right? What, what happened to the dove? Where's the peace? Right? Now, there's, there's a reason why God chooses these images and these pictures. He's communicating something about himself that he wants them to understand. And it's clear that as they're about to enter into this covenant relationship with God, that he wants them to take very seriously this relationship This is not a relationship to take casually or flippantly. Uh, This is not just a generic religion where you show up once a week and pay your respect to some god to keep him off your back. That's not what this god is about, right? Uh, This is not a hobby or something to tinker with in your spare time. This is to be an overshadowing reality in every part of their life. This God is big and powerful, and he should dominate their whole existence. Um, they need to take it very seriously. And so in this account, we really see uh, three purposes or three three reasons why they should take uh, seriously who God is. So let's look at those. Uh, first, they should be very serious about God's word. Um Verse 9 says, and it's it's really the shortest part of the whole account, but very specific. It says in verse 9, And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I'm coming to you in this thick cloud, so that the people may hear when I speak with you, and may also believe you forever. Um, First purpose. He says it straight out as a purpose. He says, This is why I'm doing this, so that uh, the people will, will understand that I am speaking directly to you. So, in essence, what God does is he says, I'm I'm going to establish your credibility among the people. I'm going to make it very clear that you're my prophet, you're my chosen leader, and um, I'm I'm speaking through you my word. Um, He says that he's going to uh, appear to them in in a thick cloud. Later, he uses the description of a thick smoke. He's going to come down in fire. Uh, When he comes, there's more description but uh, I picked some fun pictures of mountains on fire, and I've lived in Colorado where half the state half the time is on fire, right? Some of you live in the western United States have seen these sites, and it's, it's, an, it's an awe-inspiring sight to see these towering mountains be dwarfed by these huge columns of smoke and fire. Um, well, that's the, the, the image here. So I'm going to come, I'm going to set the mountain on fire, uh, and it's going to be Awesome. Uh, by the way, it's, it's clear that, that it's a supernatural fire. Uh, and we know from, if you, we don't know where the Mount Sinai was, but if you go throughout uh, the whole Sinai Peninsula, one thing's very clear, there's nothing to burn. Right? This is not a forest fire because there's no forest. Unless you can make rocks burn, you're not going to, so this is not a natural fire. Uh, another problem would be, you know, Moses actually goes up in the mountain. If the mountain is actually on fire, he would be, Incinerated, different kind of miracle, I guess. Um, It's it's a supernatural appearance, right? God comes in in a fire, much like the burning bush. It's not not a literal fire. It's it's, it's God coming in a theophany, a picture of himself. But there is real smoke, and it's this terrifying column of darkness. Um, And through that smoke, he says, I'm going to speak. And through that, they're going to understand clearly that you didn't make this up. Right? This is not Moses writing down his own version of a religion, right? The people are going to know, all of Israel is going to know, because they're going to hear God thundering these commands to Moses so that they know where it came from. And he says, As the result of that, they will believe you forever. They will believe you forever. Well, forever is a long time since none of them are actually going to live that long, right? Uh, but God is, is, is establishing here uh, something new and different, And that is that there will be uh, his speaking word to messengers like Moses who will record it down. And it will remain forever as a testimony of what God willed, what God spoke. Um, And through that, God is not only really establishing Moses, but he's really establishing the authority of his word, of scripture. Now, for all of us, you know, it's fun to see people who have like real paper Bibles if not, the one on your phone is just as authoritative, right? It's still God's word, even though it's digital. Um, God's word. And it's great. We have God's word and we kind of get the, uh, the, the feeling that every religion exists because it has this written body of truth. And certainly in modern days, you know, there's the Quran and there's many examples and versions of this. What, what we don't realize that is, is, is at this time when they're at Mount Sinai, there was no scripture anywhere. Right? That's not how it worked back in those days. The, the gods of Egypt and the idol gods, the false gods that they all worshipped, um, were, uh, were not known to be really talkative. Right? They didn't reveal themselves. They didn't, they didn't give a, a set of scriptures by which people lived. They were mysterious and fickle and hard to figure out. And so uh, the, the priests of any given god would have to guess what their God wanted, and they would try through trial and error by offering this and offering that and doing this and, like in uh, Elijah with the prophets of Baal, you know they cut themselves and they dance, trying to figure out what's going to get the God's attention because they don't know. Because there's nothing written. This is the first time God's creating a Bible, right? And He said this Bible is going to be this scripture. What Moses is going to record is going to be authoritative forever. Why? Because God spoke it directly. Now, of course, with Moses, much of what uh, Moses records is very much dictated right out of the mouth of God, right into Moses' pen, right? Um, but, but we know throughout the scripture that, that God spoke in many ways and he revealed himself to many uh, other prophets and eventually the apostles through Jesus himself so that we have a holy book, right? And, and so, so what God is saying here in these few verses is that I am going to speak my words to my chosen prophets and it is going to be authoritative for you, right? It's not people making stuff up. It is God speaking his words directly to us. Um, and how that gets done uh, with the prophets and with the apostles is different, but the point is it's God's word. Uh, 2 Timothy 3.16 verifies this. It says, All Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. All Scripture is God-breathed. So every word of Scripture is authoritative. It's true. It's reliable. It is without error. We can trust it. Um, Application for this, uh, you know, did the people take... Moses' words seriously? Did they take the scripture that came out seriously? Do we take the Bible seriously as the final authority over our whole life? Uh, Is it the absolute standard of truth for us? Or do we let sometimes other influences from the world uh, judge scripture, to stand over scripture? And there's a lot of things that can do that. The, the, the two in our day that are probably most obvious are science and culture. Uh, there are many people who, who would say that you know, there's things in the Bible that just cannot be true because science doesn't verify it. right? The flood of, flood of Noah, how could that have happened? Science doesn't verify it. Therefore the Bible must be wrong. Um, I challenge those people to go stand before Mount Sinai. <laughs> and tell God that, right? Uh, Because the whole point of Mount Sinai is God shows up and he speaks and he reveals himself with such power and such force that it's clear God speaks his word and therefore we can trust it. Um, If there's a problem between science and the Bible, uh, (laughs) the Bible wins, right? Um, and And the reality is that it, Number one, it wins because the Bible affirms that there are things that are supernatural that are not explainable by science. Secondly, um, there are sometimes problems because we, we misunderstand or misinterpret what the Bible really means. Right? So Some conflicts are not so much with science and the Bible but with our misunderstanding of Scripture. A good example of that is uh, most translations will say that there were 600,000 Israelite men who left in the Exodus, right? If you figure most of those guys are married and had at least one children, that means there are some million-plus people. And a lot of people will teach that. A lot of commentaries will talk about that. Um, But when you figure out the logistics of what it would look like for a million-plus people to be wandering through the wilderness, it seems hard to imagine. Uh, The reality is that that there's a Hebrew word in in that description we don't know the meaning of. There are 600-somethings. We don't know what those somethings are. So it may have been way less people than 600,000. So there are those issues. But the thing is, bottom line, is the Bible authoritative over your life, right? Does it have final say over your life? Um, It is ultimately a decision of faith to accept and believe the Bible is true and God-breathed. That every word of it is God-breathed, accurate, true, and reliable, and it has the power have authority over our life. So that's the first purpose. Second thing, uh, God appears this way and he, he, he does this great demonstration in order to show them that they need to be serious about God. They need to be dead serious about their relationship with him. Uh, verse 16, it says, on the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain. And a very loud trumpet blast, so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke, because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke went up like the smoke of a kiln or a furnace, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder... Moses spoke and God answered him in a thunder. And the Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain and the Lord called Moses up. Um, God does this because he wants them to know who they are dealing with. What kind of God is this? They want them to be very clear who he is and what he is like. Uh, He is not uh, trying to terrify them as some kind of a joke Uh, to laugh and see how he can just freak them out, right? Uh, He is not, um, you know, he doesn't relish and enjoy them shaking in terror. Uh, But the reality is this is who God is. He is a holy God who is in many levels terrifying to sinful, finite human beings. Uh, He is not like anything they have ever encountered or contemplated, or could even imagine, and God wants them to know that. He wants them to understand and have a glimpse of what He is at some level really like. And of course, they can never know that fully, but at some level, what is this God like? What What is He? He is He is infinitely beyond what they can think or imagine. At some level, He is ter- a terrifying reality. Um, and so he invites them to draw near, but there's a bit of an irony here as well. He invites them to draw near, but there are clear boundaries, right? That are come up to the mountain, but they cannot touch the mountain. There's a, a, a perimeter set around the base of the mountain of which they cannot cross. There's a threshold for them that is absolutely off limits. No trespassing, no going farther. Uh, because... There must be a space between man and God. We cannot just walk into his presence. That's the point. Because there is something terribly dangerous about this God. Um, In fact, I think you could make the case uh, clearly that there is nothing more dangerous you will ever encounter than God. There's nothing more dangerous you will ever deal with than God. And He wants them to be aware of that. Uh, some of us may have a problem with that, and we may think, well, how can somebody be both loving and gracious and good and be dangerous? And C.S. Lewis understood and wrestled with that problem in the Chronicles of Narnia. And you may well remember the words of Mr. Beaver about Aslan, right? And one of the children asked, Isn't Aslan safe? And Mr. Beaver said, Safe? Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe. But he is good. He is the king, I tell you. Remember that story? Now you need to go back and read the book. (laughs) It should be an annual occurrence, right? Good stuff there. Yeah, Aslan's pictured as this lion, fierce and roaring, and not safe, dangerous, but good and loving. And certainly that is true of God. So... um, so they need to take God seriously. And, and to, to help them appreciate this, God gives them this vision of holiness. Um, you know, we try as preachers and teachers and theologians, we try to describe and define the word holiness. But actually, it's a very difficult word to accurately describe and define. Um, But God kind of goes beyond just definition. He just gives them a picture of it. He says, I'm not going to try to define it, but let me show you what holiness is. Uh, There is thick smoke. God comes down as a raging fire to the top of the mountain. There are flashes of lightning and earth-shaking thunder. There's the scream of this trumpet, this shofar. And it says it just keeps louder and louder. Right? that in itself could be a bit unnerving, right, if you've never heard this before. God's voice, it says, thunders. Now, for us living in a day of, of amplification, and if you've ever had the joy of living next to a karaoke bar, you, 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 you know how how fun it is to just crank that volume up until the whole house is shaking, right? Um, so for us, loud volume is not uh, anything new or would be remarkable. But imagine this people who live in a day where There's no way to amplify sound, except for, you know, maybe a cone. But uh, the whole experience of that, you know, mega subwoofer car that drives by and and you just know it's driving by because your whole house is going, right, right? They they didn't experience that. And also there's this voice thundering out of the cloud that's vibrating through through their bones, right? Um, It is big. It is terrifying. It is awesome. And it's this vivid image of of what God's holy character is. He is like a raging inferno that has the power to consume everything. He is veiled in thick darkness. He is beyond knowing. Who can really see or comprehend what God is like? Who can imagine what He looks like or what He really is? Um, Who could sneak into His presence to get a glimpse of Him? No one. No one. Who could speak with such power and authority that the whole earth would shake at his voice? God alone. Uh, who could stand before the brilliance of his being brighter than any flash of lightning? So, so, so God describes in pictures his holiness. Right? He is a God who is unlike anything else, in a class all of his own, without equal or comparison. And even these images are only small glimpses of him. What he is in reality is even far greater than those things. Uh, So so God gives him this picture, this object lesson of what his holy character is like in in visual image. And then, uh, actually before this, he he says, because of that, there are some things required of you if you are to approach him. If you are to come before him and meet him, uh, you need to prepare for that meeting. And so he says to Moses, um, go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow and let them wash their garments and be ready for the third day. For on the third day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in, this, in the sight of all the people and you shall set limits around the mountain saying, take care not to go up to the mountain or to touch it. Uh, when the trumpet sounds a long blast, they shall come to the mountain and um, so Moses went down and he consecrated the people and they washed their garments and he said to the people, be ready for the third day. Do not go near a woman. Okay, uh, that's, that's, uh, that's really polite Hebrew talk, but don't have sex, right? Like they didn't, that's how they said it back then. Um, and, and what that all means is this is a relationship that requires great care and you don't just walk into God's presence without preparing yourself. Uh, It requires three clear things. First, it requires separation and boundaries. You need to know the limits, right? Um, Living in in Thailand, we kind of get this. We understand that uh, a land that's ruled by a great monarch, uh, he is separated from from everyday people. And no matter how much this king may serve and love his people and and go out and be with and among them, you just don't approach him. Right? And if you do, you do it with, with boundaries and with separation and showing the, the highest respect. Well, that's what it is with God. There has to be a gulf that honors him by separating ourselves from him. Secondly, there had to be appropriate cleansing. And actually, part of the law is going to explain what that requires, but they don't have that yet. So for now, just wash your clothes. <laughs> that's what's required at this point. Wash your clothes. Um, uh, prepare yourself by... Um, uh, cleaning up, right? Make yourself presentable. And of course, these people had been traveling two months through the wilderness, not a lot of water. I'm thinking they hadn't washed their clothes a lot. Um, if, if they didn't look bad, they certainly smelled bad. right? God says, okay, you know, you got to take a bath. Okay, clean up before you come into my presence. Uh, thirdly, um, it requires a claim of God's of our highest love and devotion, uh, the thing about uh, not having sex, you know, abstaining from, from sexual intercourse kind of throws people off. Does this mean that God is saying sex is evil? Well, no, no more than stinky clothes are evil, although that does get close. I think, you know, that middle school boy who hasn't washed his gym clothes all semester. I think that's sin. Thin. Okay, I think that is evil. He needs to do something about that. Um. Uh, this, is not, this is not about sin. It's about what's required to come before God. God, To honor Him, we need to come before Him in every way clean. Right? And we'll talk more about the, the need for inner cleaning as well. But the, the, the whole abstaining from sex thing was to, was, was to say, God's demand is for your highest love and affection. Right? Even above the, the intimacy and love that's in marriage. What God, God even supersedes that. Right? He's even above that. He doesn't replace it, and, and he, God sanctions marriage. Marriage is a good thing, and He's not saying you can never have sex. He's just saying two days, right? That's all. Just two days. But uh, for those two days, God gets, gets supremacy over even that relationship, right? That's what's required: your highest affection, love, and devotion. Um, so they need to take God seriously. Right? Do we take God that seriously? Third thing, and I'm going to do this one really short. um, They need to be serious about obedience. Uh, They come to the mountain. God speaks to Moses, the Ten Commandments, in this thundering voice. Uh, We'll look at that later. And afterwards, after he's done speaking the Ten Commandments, um, in verse 20, of chapter 20, Moses said to the people, uh, Do not fear, for God has come to test you, that the fear of him may be before you so that you may not sin. And there's the third purpose of how God came. uh, So that they would fear God. And it worked. They were terrified. They drew back trembling with fear. Uh, Why? So that they would take obedience seriously. God wants them to know that sin is nothing to mess with. Uh, God saves them by grace. There's nothing that they can do to earn or merit his favor, his kindness, or his love. But there is plenty you can do to earn wrath. There's plenty you can do to earn God's judgment. And he wants them to know that if they choose the path of sin, this is who they deal with. You will, we will all stand before this kind of God as an awesome, terrible judge one day. And I don't want to have to stand before him and explain what a mess up I was, right? How I didn't do what he asked. It just it takes me back to my childhood when me and my brother would break things or get in trouble or terrorize my mom. And, you know, she would finally lose her patience. She would say, just wait until your dad gets home. <laughs> and That was total fear, Right. Because where I didn't really necessarily fear my mom, I was terrified of my dad. And uh, we would become instant perfect angels, right? Because we feared the wrath that was to come, right? Well, God wants them to take seriously his call to a holy and righteous life. So those are the three things that that, that, that I think are the motives, the purpose behind God doing this. So uh, let's... Uh, shift gears a little bit and wrap this up and apply it to our own modern uh, post-Jesus context Um, and I think from the New Testament perspective we need to understand two things first that it's the same God it's the same holy terrifying dangerous God that we worship but we come to a very different mountain um you know, really, who can approach God? And one of the th- images that we should take away from this is that God is in many ways unapproachable. His holiness is such that we can't just walk up to God casually or flippantly or easily. In fact, he is, uh, as he portrays himself here, he is unapproachable. Uh, he, he calls us to draw near, but there, there is this boundary and this gulf that must separate God from us. Uh, after God speaks the, the, the Ten Commandments, it says now in verse 18, Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled and they stood far off and said to Moses, You speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us. They're like, that's too much. Not did they not even want to see God, they didn't even want to hear Him. Right? His voice was so unraveling. It says the people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. And it reminds us that we cannot go before God. We need a mediator. We need somebody who will stand and and who will mediate between us and God. Um, And maybe, you know, you read through this and you think, well, if I was there, I think I would be braver than that. I mean, this sounds kind of cool, actually. I I would want to see this. And maybe you think to yourself, I wouldn't be afraid, right? I'm a tough guy. I'd be right there, right? Well, let me tell you, that's not bravery. That's foolishness, right? It's not bravery. Any more than playing uh, catch with a live grenade is brave. Or you pull the pin out of a grenade and you start tossing it back and forth, waiting for it to blow up. That's not brave. It's stupid, right? And to say that you would be brave before this kind of God is not brave. It's just foolish, right? It's stupid, it's, it's diminishing the terrifying, destructive power that God has over our life for all eternity. Um, so the point of the story is he is so awesome in holiness and power and glory that no one can stand before him. Uh, if we believe that God's word is truth, if we really believe that God has spoken and inspired every word of scripture, then we should read scripture and realize that we are in serious trouble because we have not followed his commands. We have not honored him as the most awesome and dangerous thing in our life or in the universe. We have not made him our highest love. Um, We cannot stand before him as one who is spotlessly clean. So like Israel, we we are in desperate need of a mediator, one who will stand between us and God. Um, I want to jump forward to uh, Hebrews chapter 12 an amazing passage, and the writer of Hebrews looks back on Exodus 19. He looks back on this very account, and he gives us a New Testament commentary, a New Testament view of, of the mountain experience. Um, and at the very end, in verse 29, he says, For our God is a consuming fire. Right? We worship the exact same God. God has not changed. He is every bit, every bit as much. The consuming fire, today that he was uh, so many years ago at Mount Sinai. Um, he is still terrible in his holiness. But he- Hebrews twelve tells us that while God has not changed, we come to a very different mountain. Uh, so it says this in verse eighteen. It says, "You have not come to what may. You have not come to what may be touched." a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and tempest, right? That's what they experienced. And the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further message be given to them, for they could not endure the order that was given, that even if a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. Right? So he describes this, He says, but he says, that's not the mountain you come to. You do not come through Jesus. You do not come to Mount Sinai. You, instead, he says in verse 22, have come to Mount Zion, to the city of li- the living God, and the heavenly Jerusalem. Um, honestly, I would love to see, even though I would be terrified, I would love to get a glimpse of Mount Zion, Mount Sinai, the fire, the, the smoke. The, I would love to see that. So, and then I would run for my life, right? But to experience that once, I, I think would be life-changing. But he says, you don't go to that mountain, that one that could be touched, because what you go to is, is even that much more awesome because it can't be touched. You come to the very living, uh, eternal city of the, of the new Jerusalem. And he goes on, he says, to, you, you come to the heavenly Jerusalem to innumerable angels in festal gathering. In other words, celebrating And to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. And to God, the judge of all. Through Jesus, and we'll see this in a minute. Through Jesus, you and I have access to the eternal God of all creation. We do have access to God. Hebrews 4 tells us that we can come boldly into his very throne. Amazing. Amazing. Amazing, right? We do not come to Mount Sinai. We come to something so much more holy and awesome, but we come to God. How is, that, how is that possible? Well, it's possible because we have a better mediator. He says, Then you come to the spirits of the righteous made perfect and to Jesus the mediator of a new covenant. Right? We're not under that covenant. We are under a new covenant mediated by Jesus himself. Guaranteed by his blood, as we celebrated this morning in communion. So, what about that blood? Well, it says that his blood speaks a better word. It says that to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Remember, uh, Abel was killed by his brother Cain, and it said that his blood what? Cried out. His blood cried out. What did it cry out? It cried out injustice. It cried out there is guilt. Upon my brother, right? What does Jesus' blood cry out? What cries out now that there is justice because Jesus took the full penalty of all our sin so that we could be declared not guilty, right? Um, We have a better mediator, Jesus, who speaks a better word through His very blood. Why? In order to give us a better cleansing, Right? We don't just come with spiffy new washed clothes. Right? Uh, we come instead clothed in the very righteousness of Christ. Right? Clothed in the righteousness of Christ. Finally, so that we can enter a better kingdom. It says in verse 25, See that you do not refuse him who is speaking, meaning Jesus and the Holy Spirit. For if they did not escape when they refused to hear him who warned them on earth, that's Moses... Much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. At that time, his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised yet once more, I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase yet once more indicates the removal of things that are shaken. That is the things that have been made in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Which is what? His unshakable eternal kingdom. We don't receive just an earthly kingdom, but we receive an unshakable, unshakable, eternal kingdom of God. So, what is to be our response to all of this? He says, Well, therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. God has not changed. Praise God, the mountain that we come to has changed and we come through a different path. We come through Jesus. We have access to the Father and we, we don't have to wait. We can come into his presence now and he welcomes us through the blood of Christ. But he is still a consuming fire and we must take seriously who God is and how we know him. And he says ultimately that we should worship him with reverence and awe. It means that we worship him as a life that's being changed by the power of the cross into one of absolute obedience. Right? Uh, it's a serious thing to lie to God, right? to pretend to worship him when there are things in our life that we are not bringing under his lordship and control. Uh, we must make We worship him by making him the highest love in our life. If there's anything in our life that we love or that even threatens to take God's love, take, take precedence over God's love. We need to deal with that because we cannot worship him unless he is the greatest love of our life. Uh, we must understand and acknowledge his awesome holiness in a way that produces in us a sense of great awe and wonder and reverence. We ought to fear God. Right? We ought to live with him as the one who is the most dangerous thing we will ever encounter and before whom we absolutely will give an account for our life. And praise God, Jesus has taken away our sin so we will never have to answer for any sin. But we may have to answer for a lot of stupidity. Because God's going to want to know how did you use your life? How did you worship me through what you've done with your life? And there's a lot of stuff we do that may not be sin, but it's not really very brilliant either, right? We give an account, right? As believers, we give an account. We will not be destroyed by Him, but we will stand before that consuming fire. And it may consume a lot of the stuff out of our life that we are holding on to. It may consume a lot of our ministry that we're convinced is God's going to love, and He may not. Because it may be being done in our strength and not his power. For our glory and not his. You've been listening to a sermon recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org.